0: Uh, the book of Jonah, but we're going back to the New Testament, back to this letter that Paul, an important early Christian leader, wrote uh, to an early uh, Christian community, the church in Colossae. We're in chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. But first of all, let me say, regressive, misogynistic, oppressive, all words that might come to your mind as we read this text. I am uh, what we call an expositional preacher. I move sequentially through books of the Bible. Uh, I did not intentionally uh, pick this text, the text that tells (laughs) wives to submit to their husbands to to preach on Mother's Day. I have to go where the text leads me, and so we're here uh, this Sunday. But let me ask... Of you something, Uh, let me ask a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. It it is easy to hear this text and dismiss it, uh, to dismiss it as regressive, misogynistic, and oppressive, uh, to dismiss it um, as 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 Paul just being a jerk. (laughs) And um, and I want to ask a little time and energy of you this morning. Let's make the effort before we're ready to dismiss this text. Let's make the effort. To understand this text, let's make an effort to really understand what Paul is saying to us here, what he's saying about human relationships. Because I do believe this is the Word of God. I believe this is God's gift to us. And that in the end, it is a good gift. And that what we find here, if we understand it, is a compelling vision of our human relationships that can transform our lives and can transform our place. And so would you join me now in the word of God, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, these words offend our sensibilities. They certainly offend much of what our culture would say. And in some ways they are troubling. But we come taking the risk of believing that these words are from you. That they are gifts. And that in the end they are full of wisdom and goodness and life. And so we need your help. We want to understand what you're saying. We want to have the humility to receive it. Even if it offends us and challenges us. So would you give us those gifts This morning, would you open our ears, would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts uh, to receive this renewing message. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the keys to understanding anything is context. And so we need to understand as we read this passage, it does not come to us in a vacuum. Uh, These words come as a part of a larger letter, the letter to the Colossian church. And it would be very, very difficult to summarize this letter. It's like trying to summarize the ocean. This letter is full of riches and complexity and beauty. And so it's difficult to summarize Colossians. But if I was forced to do that, I would summarize this letter with one simple sentence. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, maybe you remember if you were with us from chapter 1, Paul paints this majestic picture of Jesus, of who he is. And he says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He rules over all things, and he holds all things together. Jesus is Lord, and he is comprehensively Lord. He holds all things together. He has an authority and a power that has no rival. Authority and a power that cannot be competed with by any of the authorities and powers of this world. Jesus is Lord. And what Paul does for us at the end of chapter 3 is he takes the confession of Jesus' authority and he brings it into contact with the daily experience of human authority. He says, if Jesus is Lord, what is it like to live under the authority structures of our lives? And it's interesting to notice in this passage that Paul speaks to people on both ends of the spectrum. He speaks to those who are under authority, and he speaks to those who are in authority. Now that is shocking for a community in this culture, the culture of the Colossians, to have people gathered into this church, the church that Paul calls the people of God, both those who are under authority and those who are in authority. But that was a reality in this community, and it's a reality in our community. It is a reality in this room. There are those here who are in authority, and there are those who are under authority. And many of us are both. We experience both. Maybe we're a parent in authority at home, but under authority at work. And what we need to notice as Paul speaks to those two groups, he uses one title over and over and over again. If you include verse 17, he uses it seven times in nine verses, and it is the title Lord he relates both the experience of being under authority and the experience of being in authority to the lordship of Christ. If you confess the authority of Jesus, the central question of this passage is, how do you live in the reality of human authority? And so we're going to consider uh, this text together, and what we'll find is that those who confess Jesus as Lord must submit and serve. Submit and serve. We'll consider each of these in turn. First of all, submit. Submission, as Paul talks about it, submission is about trust. It is about trusting enough to respect and follow leadership. And Paul talks about three groups of people who are under existing leadership structures. And those leadership structures existed culturally at this time. In other words, Paul isn't shocking his original readers by saying that wives should submit. It challenges us, but that would not have been shocking to his original leaders. So he, he speaks to people who are in existing leadership structures. But we need to know, as we consider these from a biblical perspective, that two of these structures are rooted in God's original design. They're rooted in creation. And one of the structures is not. So marriage. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that God gives husbands a leadership role in marriage. Now listen, one of the, I have struggled this week, okay? Because one of the hard things with this text is it just raises so many questions. And so to say God has given husbands a leadership role in marriage, it raises so many questions, so many objections. It raises a need for, for nuance and a need to deal with, uh, with objections to this teaching. And, and listen, I can't deal with them all this morning. We would be here a very long time and you all would be asleep. Um, and so I, I want to, first of all, recommend a resource to you. When it comes to the issue of submission within marriage, there's a book called The Meaning of Marriage. It's by Tim and Kathy Keller, and it deals with this topic very, very well. There's a a chapter in there and an appendix that both deal with this issue, and I want to recommend those to you as a balanced, biblical way of dealing with the issue of submission. And then let me also say, God giving husbands a leadership role in marriage does not mean, it does not mean that men are superior to women. It does not mean that men should dominate and make all the decisions in marriage. Okay, this is not about it's not about equality of value. It is about a distinction in roles. So God fully affirms both men and women are made fully in his image and they are equally valuable to him. But the roles in marriage, God does give the husbands a weight of responsibility for the direction of their home. And so Paul calls women to trust enough to respect that leadership, to respond to the leadership of their husbands. And again, so much else I need to say and don't have time to say. But that design, if we're going to accept the authority of Scripture, is rooted in creation. It is rooted in God's good design. Second design that's rooted in creation is the relationship between parents and children. God gives parents the responsibility to teach And to train their children. That is not full authority to do whatever they want. But it is the authority to direct their children. And in particular to direct their children to Christ and to the gospel. And to Christ's kingdom. That design of authority is rooted in God's design in creation. And so Paul calls children to trust enough to respect and submit to the leadership of their parents. Parenting, marriage, design of leadership rooted in creation, slavery. A structure that is not rooted in God's original design. A structure that was created by human culture after the fall into sin. And many are frustrated with Paul here that he does not more directly challenge the injustice of one human being owning another human being. And I struggle with that too. Why didn't Paul more directly challenge that institution? But what I want you to see and what I want you to understand about this context is that if Paul had said to the slaves that were in the Colossian church, rebel, run away. Or if he had said to the masters in the Colossian church, release all of your slaves into freedom, it would have left those slaves in destitution. There was no social structure for them. It's not as if they could leave and go get a job and support themselves. They would have been left to starve. And so Paul says, for now, for now, because of the situation that God has placed you in, even though it may be a situation of injustice, slaves trust enough to respect the leadership of your master. Now, why? Why would anyone under authority want to listen to the message of submission? Well, I want you to notice that Paul calls us to submission if we are under authority. He calls us to submission not because of the quality of leadership. He doesn't say, trust your husband, trust your parents, trust your master, and therefore submit. Now, what is the reason for submission in this text? It's Jesus, right? He says submit because it's fitting to the Lord. It is pleasing to the Lord. Because you are serving the Lord. Because you are fearing the Lord. The motivation for submission is Jesus. Paul is saying trust Jesus enough to respect those who are in authority. And Jesus motivates submission in two ways. He he motivates it by his example. Both the word for submission and the word for obedience in this text, both of those words are used of Jesus. They describe what Jesus did when he chose to take on flesh and die for our sins. Jesus, in agreement with the Father and the Spirit, freely chose to submit himself. To become a slave and to be obedient. Philippians says, obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus himself, even though he was equal with the Father, fully God, chose to take on the role of submission for the sake of our salvation. So it helps to know it's motivating to know that Jesus has shared this role with us. But Jesus also motivates submission with hope. You remember how I said if slaves ran away or if, they, if their masters released them, they would have been left in destitution, they would have been left in starvation. So the slaves of Paul's day, they did not dream of freedom. They dreamed of an inheritance. They dreamed of being adopted by a family that would provide them with the resources that they needed to live. That is how they would find freedom. Not by being released by their masters, but by being adopted and brought into an inheritance. And so what does Paul say to them? He says, Jesus is Lord. You belong to Him. And He is a Lord who will bring justice. And He is a Lord... Who has given you an inheritance. And it is an inheritance of a new creation. We put this in context of what Colossians says about inheritance. It is the inheritance promised to Abraham and to his family. And Paul says if you are in Jesus, whether you are a master or a slave, you have been given that inheritance. And so Jesus motivates submission with hope. Listen, the implication of this text for us is that if you are in a position under authority, and we can multiply it out of the specific examples here, whether that's authority in the home, it's at work, at school, or in all sorts of situations, if you are in a position of being under authority, which is every one of us in this room, Jesus calls us to trust him enough to submit, to respect, and follow the leadership under which God has placed us. Now, as I said, I can't make every caveat, but let me make a few. That does not mean that we must remain in an abusive situation. Some have taken texts like this and said that women or children who are in the situation of domestic abuse should stay, and that is not what this means. It also doesn't mean that if you're in a toxic work situation that you are not free to leave and find another job. Okay? What it does mean is that while you are in an existing leadership structure, God calls you to trust Jesus enough to respect that structure, to follow the leadership under which God has placed you. Here's the image that helps me. Jesus is a screenwriter He's a director. And we all have roles in his movie. And many many times those roles are roles under authority. They are roles that mean we have to follow leadership, whether we like that leadership or not, whether we trust that leadership or not. Those are the roles that God has given to us. Those are the roles that our director has given to us. And what this text calls us to is to trust the storyteller. It is to trust the one who is writing the story and know that the story is headed somewhere good and to wholeheartedly play the roles that he has given to us. And the reason that we can trust that is because the writer became an actor. Because Jesus, the director, the screenwriter, he became a player in the story. And he played the role of submission, he played the painful role of obedience that led him to the cross on our behalf. Now, what Paul says about submission is certainly difficult, uh, possibly still offensive. But what you need to know is that what he says while while he's what he says to those under authority. Is challenging what he says to those in authority is revolutionary. And so we need to see that those who confess Jesus as Lord not only submit, but serve as well. Scholars call this type of literature that we've read here at the end of Colossians chapter 3, they call it a household code. And this type of literature exists not only in the New Testament. But it exists all throughout Greek and Roman literature. Stretching as far back as Aristotle. Aristotle wrote, like Paul, a household code. And you need to understand that a household is not what we think of as a home. A household wasn't a parent and some children or a couple parents and some children. It was many families related to each other living together. Okay, so it was grandpa the patriarch, and then all of his children, and then all of their children, and then all of their slaves, and then their business, or farming. It was all integrated in this unit called the household. And this unit, the household was the central economic, political, and social element of ancient culture. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the household. And these codes, what they were is they were management books. They were instructions to the patriarch, to the leader, to the manager, how to manage his household well. And these codes, almost all of them, talked about wives, children, and slaves as property. So these codes were management techniques on how to manage your assets to produce wealth and status for yourself. Do you see what Paul does with the tradition? He revolutionizes it. He upends it. Because when Paul gives his household code, it's not, hey, here's how you manage your property for your own benefit. It's, here's how you care for people for their benefit. So husbands, don't use your wives. Love them. Parents, don't dominate your children, but direct them in a way that does not discourage them, that causes them instead to flourish. Masters, give your slaves justice and fairness. Understand, in this culture, the only people who could expect justice and fairness were property-owning Roman citizens. Paul says to these masters, take these people who were... By their culture, subhuman. And he says, bring them into your privilege. Give them the same rights and the same privileges that you have as a property owning Roman citizen. Give that to those who are under you. Paul does not teach people how to manage property for their own benefit. He teaches them how to love people for those people's benefit. And just as with those who are under authority, Jesus is the reason and the resource for those who are in authority. When Paul tells husbands to love their wives, it is the same word. It's the Greek word, the unique Greek word that the New Testament uses to talk about what Jesus has done to talk about the sacrificial love that led Jesus to the cross. So you see, Paul says, if you're under authority, reflect Jesus. If you're in authority, what? Reflect Jesus. Love in the same way that Jesus has loved you. And it is the one who is the Lord, the one who has gone to the cross, the one who has given of himself for our salvation, for our redemption. He is the master of chapter 4, verse 1. He is the master of those who are under authority, and He is the master of those who are in authority. So Paul is saying, if you're in authority, the cross, it is the pattern, it is the demand for your leadership. That you would lead in a way that reflects the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. We have friends who did marriage seminars in Malawi, Africa, where we lived for a couple of years. And you have to understand that in traditional Malawian culture, men's and women's roles, gender roles, were very, very distinct. The lines were very clear, and they were very hierarchical. Hierarchical? Hierarchical. (laughs) And so, if a a man, if a husband spoke to his wife, she averted her eyes and she curtsied. And sometimes would go on her knees. And so, so, when my friend would do these marriage seminars, and he would begin to talk about how husbands should love their wives, he would walk over to where the women were sitting, and you had the men on this side and the women on this side, and he would go to the front row where the women were sitting, and he would get on his knees, And he would start talking. And he would look at the man and say, this is what it means to love your wife in the way that Christ has loved his church. And it made everyone in the room very uncomfortable. (laughs) But it visually captured exactly what Paul is saying here about authority, about leadership. Authority and leadership are opportunities to get on our knees. Paul reverses through Jesus the direction of power. He says power should not benefit those who have it. Power should benefit those who don't have it. The direction of power should be those who have it giving themselves for the benefit of those who don't have it. That is the pattern of the cross of Christ. It is the pattern and demand of authority for those who belong to Christ. So where has God given you leadership? Where has He given you authority? Maybe you think it is insignificant, and possibly it is. But every, every experience of leadership, every place of authority is an opportunity for us to get on our knees. It is an opportunity for us to reflect the sacrificial service of Jesus, to reflect His self-giving love to those whom God has given to us, to take whatever power, whatever privilege we have and pour it out on behalf of those who don't have it. What's the direction of your leadership? What's the direction of authority? What little authority God may have given you? Do you see how this changes everything? Do you see how confessing Jesus as Lord changes everything? We think of authority and power as as things that separate us. as, As things that create distance. So... Those who don't have it, resent and rebel against those who do. And those who do have it, use and abuse their power against those who don't. That's how we think about it, right? Do you see how Paul imagines a different possibility? Do you see how he takes the reality of who Jesus is, and he imagines something better? He imagines unity Where we would expect division and where we would expect dissonance, he imagines harmony. How is that possible? How is it possible in the daily structures of authority to have harmony, to have peace? Well, remember back to chapter 1. When Paul talks about the lordship of Jesus, he says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And he holds all things together. But that's not all he says. He said he is also the firstborn from the dead. And he does what? He reconciles all things. He reconciles all things. He reconciles husbands and wives. He reconciles slaves and masters, parents and children. Jesus' death and resurrection makes it possible for us to live in the authority structures of our lives with peace, with love, and with grace. So the question for us is do we trust him enough? Do we trust him enough to submit? Do we trust him enough to serve? Do we trust him enough to let him teach us the way of peace? Let's pray.